Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. I met up recently in Las Vegas with three of the smartest women leading the liberty movement today, Ovens O'Brien, Naomi Brockwell, and my own wife, Terry Kibbe. They rule, and they're going to tell us why it is that women are taking over the liberty movement. Check it out. Okay, I don't know if this is my worst nightmare or like a dream come true podcast for me. I'll let you guys know it a little bit. And but uh, Naomi Brockwell, this this lady Terry Kibbe, and Ovens O'Brien, um, we did everything that that we actually hate at Free the People by um, uh, creating a super stereotypical. You're all redheads. You're all women. Uh, this is sort of uh, the libertarian ghetto, and, and we're just going to talk about women's issues because that's what's important. All right, do you still want to keep your marriage? Because you know how I feel about the phrase women's issues. <laughs> how do you feel, really Terry? Well. <laughs> that's great, that's great. How do you feel about women's issues? Well, I think that issues affect everyone and not just women. Mommy My, and daddy yeah. are fighting. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I lost my train of thought. What were we saying? Women's issues. Women's issues. Now, there's there's two things I hate: um, judging people based on the immutable characteristics um, of their physical bodies, and the fact that most people don't realize that redheads are slightly more awesome than everybody else. <laughs> that that is true. That it is. makes me a little torn uh, because I want to reject part of that, but also I accept the unequivocal fact that redheads are better. So it's like it's a confusing issue, I guess. Yeah. I don't know about the immutable part. Because sometimes redheads come in different colors on different days. I've noticed this with you. <laughs> Who, me? Yeah. No, I, I'm generally a redhead with all of the awesomeness that, that comes with that. Well, let's, let's go around the horn now that, now that Terry's angry at me. <laughs> and uh, you are the blockchain girl. I, I just made that <laughs> title up for you. It's a great title. I'll take but, it. But tell everybody about Naomi Brockwell and, and how awesome you are. How awesome. I mean, we've only got a short amount of time, so I'll, I'll try and condense it as much as I can. So just the headline. Uh, just the headline. Uh, so I am a producer for Stossel, and I have a tech show that focuses on blockchain tech, which is pretty cool because that is you know going crazy at the moment. You had Trump tweeting about it the other day. You had two days of Senate hearings this week with every politician talking about this stuff. So it's a pretty exciting time to be in this industry. Thanks. Terry Lynn? <laughs> Only my mother would call me Terry Lynn when she was mad at me. So apparently you're mad at me by calling out my middle name. Is that it? No. Is that where we're going? I'm never mad at you, honey. Yeah, right. So Terry Kibbe, I am CEO of Free the People. I am also obviously married to Matt over here. Uh, we work together at Free the People. We work together at Kibbe on Liberty. I've been working in the libertarian space for more years than I will admit to, because I'm not going to admit to my age. And before that, I was an engineer. Avins. Um, I'm Avins O'Brien. Uh, I'm currently the administrative director of Lit Club, which is a cannabis brand in Los Angeles. Um, I do a lot of libertarian activism, uh, besides the drug war stuff um, and the commercialization of, of, of wonderful substances. Um, I, uh, I'm a second generation libertarian. My parents uh, were both co-founders of state LPs, and um, I was homeschooled and 
I spend my time basically talking about what that was like and then just talking about various libertarian topics at conferences and articles on Facebook and wherever anyone will let me just yammer on. Yeah. yeah. So we're all we're all here at Freedom Fest, and uh, this this is quite a gathering of. It, it's not just libertarian by any means. It's constitutional conservatives and and liberty republicans and anarcho capitalists and big old libertarian party guys. And some um, people that just seem mildly confused about where yeah. they are. <laughs> well, that, or about that, where they're here. Yeah. By, by the way, that guy was following me, and it was sort of weird. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, at. What's what's interesting about this? I always used to joke about this when I was when I was a kid. There were like a dozen libertarians in the country, and they were all dorky guys, and we would sit around and argue about the footnotes. And so what, what's changed that there are just more of you now? <laughs> well, oh, no, now well, there's, there's women. <laughs> there there are some women. There are some women. <laughs> they're in this room. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, in, in fairness, you know, when you go speak at Students for Liberty or Young Americans for Liberty, and and Freedom Fest, I don't think is is a good representation of this. Um, because it's more conservative, but when when you go speak to student libertarian groups, um, the ladies are showing up. Yeah, and and I have this theory that's unscientific, but I guarantee you it's one hundred percent true that <laughs> vibrant social movements don't start to matter until the chicks show up, because because women are smarter than men, and and they're the ones that take the dorky guys with the books and, and, and actually say, why don't we actually do something with this and turn it into a, a flourishing movement? That's my theory. So what you're saying is that we show up, we clean you up, we make you guys look a little bit more presentable, we get you to hopefully stop talking and quoting dead economists and, and tell stories and actually reach human beings on a different level? Well, you're projecting because that's what you did. <laughs> but I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that most women take that responsibility. Like They're like, just let those guys off in the corner. And I, I won't name names, Judd. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but what, what is it? I mean, you guys have all been libertarians um, uh, for as long as, as ever. Um, what, is, what is the current state of liberty, Naomi? Ah, the current state of liberty. I mean, it depends which perspective you look at. I think on the one hand, you're seeing a lot more nanny state happening. You're seeing um, people clamping down on freedom of speech. And I mean, if, if you're just kind of looking at the state of culture, I think we're getting worse moving away from freedom. Then you look at the tech advances. And I think we're living in an age that's better than ever. I think that finally, I mean, cryptocurrency in particular, I'm always going to go to that because <laughs> it's like my passion. But honestly, I think that's the biggest step towards freedom that we've taken in the last hundred years. Because once you get back control of the money supply, then you get freedom of choice again. You can choose where to spend your money. You know, you can spend, uh, choose to, to support things that the government may not like and I think that's uh, that's true freedom and until you have like a, a true uh, marketplace money you can't have a truly free society so I think that on the one hand I do see bad things happening but on the other hand I'm really optimistic about where we're going and um, perhaps maybe in the future taking back financial privacy you're seeing people talking about it more and more especially now that Facebook is getting into the money business with the new coin Libra um, 
I think that people don't trust Facebook and that's a good thing because it sparks this conversation about financial privacy, why Facebook shouldn't be trusted. I'm hoping this will extend to the fact that MasterCard and Visa and PayPal and the government and Chase and all of these places have been tracking our financial data for a long time and maybe we should start talking about that too. So that I'm hopeless. I'm hopelessly optimistic. So we'll see what happens. So it's sort of like two different things because the, the, the pessimistic part, the sad part, is kind of all the dumb shit that the political class continues to do and the tribal warfare and the Well pitting us against each other. I mean it's so it's so transparent if you if you look at what's going on. Every time I see some issue where I'm like, why are people even talking about that? You just dig a little deep and you're like, oh, they're distracting us because they're about to bomb this country. Or, you know, they're distracting us because the debt ceiling is just, you know, coming back. And uh, so there's always something going on and it's just it's sad that there are so many I hate to say, but like useful idiots out there who are so willing to just take whatever is put in front of them and say like, yeah, that's the issue that I should be concerned about. You know, I, um, I, I like that we have a lot of alternative media now so you can get different perspectives and you can start to talk about issues that are real. You don't have to just take whatever the government narrative is from the mainstream media. Um, but I think we have a long way to go still. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we just, Terry and I were involved for a long time trying to uh, rescue the Republican Party for itself. I, I'm emptying my closet here. I, I've, <laughs> I've, I've done some horrible things in my life. And, you know, we, we helped elect guys like Rand Paul and Mike Lee and, and Justin Amash and Thomas Massey. Yeah. Well, good book there. <laughs> that is the, the only good thing that have happened. By, by the way, I won't name all the failures because <laughs> the list would be too long about people that, that let us down and disappointed yeah. us. But... We decided four years ago when we started Free the People to, to, to sort of walk away from the political process. Is not, this is not how we're going to do it. Um, it's going to be culture and it's going to be tech. And, and maybe we can innovate our way around this. We had Patrick Byrne on the show just recently and he's, he's got this tech stack for humanity. And he's trying to find a blockchain solution to all sorts of social, social problems that are basically just a hack around bureaucrats and, and government money and all that stuff. Yeah, you're seeing a lot of people come up with some really interesting things. Like blockchain tech is a way to decentralize trust, essentially. So um, obviously that applies to currency. We've seen that be incredibly successful with Bitcoin. Um, I mean, it's it's what's most interesting right now is that Libra introduces their white paper and says, we're going to do this kind of quasi-centralized thing. And immediately governments around the world jump on it. You have the French finance minister who says, like, we cannot allow this to exist. You have the head of the, the um, you know, uh, EU, the central bank there, saying we can't allow this to exist. You have Maxime Waters spearheading this movement in the United States saying they need to have a moratorium on development immediately. They have to stop all development. Um, the politicians don't like it, but the interesting thing is, is that maybe Facebook is now realizing the value of having something that's decentralized because Bitcoin hasn't been shut down. They haven't written to the CEO of Bitcoin and said, you got to stop. So we're finally seeing what a successful alternative money can look like. And that's exciting. And if we can apply that same tech to other industries, as you mentioned, Patrick Byrne is doing some great stuff with like land titles and stuff like that. Um, it's about decentralizing trust. And I think that tech can be applied to corporations. It can be applied to all kinds of things. So we're moving into a decentralized era and that's exciting. So on this show, I asked uh, Catherine Mangu Ward whether or not she thought that Mark Zuckerberg was a lizard alien from another planet. That's a great question. And she did not say no. Hmm. Where are you on this? 
I mean, I, it's, a, it's a great question. I'm not going to say no either because I don't have a definitive answer. It's very complicated. Um, and if I had my tinfoil hat with me, I'd be able to maybe think more clearly because there's a lot of radio waves. Sorry, I shouldn't be going down there. <laughs> um, do, do you guys want to weigh in on this? I mean, let's get at the big issues here. It's important. The, the tinfoil hat issue? Or the Zuckerberg, or the Zuckerberg being a lizard. Being a lizard. <laughs> I don't know. I, it's it's possible. I think yeah. it's highly, highly possible. I'm really into the memes where he looks like Data from Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's like that's Absolutely. really my like that's where that's where I sit yeah. there. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going lizard. I'm going android. Is that the best part of your day? The the memes. <laughs> Sometimes. So so speaking of hacks of big government. Um, you are homeschooled, mm-hmm. and, and you've spent a lot of time talking about ways that, that parents and communities get around the failures of government education. T- tell me a little bit about that. Well, it's interesting because every state has different laws regarding homeschooling. So it's it's harder to homeschool, say, California than it is in, in a place like New Hampshire. I grew up in New Hampshire. And... Um, I found there are just so many ways for parents to get around the entire idea of, of mandatory compulsory um, public school education. I mean, some people send their kids to private school. They don't feel like they have the ability to homeschool their kids themselves. My parents did unschooling before unschooling was a thing. Like now there's a whole movement called unschooling. And it's like we're going to um, – we're going to let our kids like uh, lead their own education and, and the parents kind of gently guide it. We have an unschooler on staff and he, he seems to have turned out okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we're okay. Like I, um, And so prior to, you know, the, the movement These of unschooling. These guys aren't sure that this is true. <laughs> <laughs> prior, prior to the uh, the movement of unschooling, my parents started homeschooling in the 70s when my, when my brothers were kids. And... Um, uh, and then as it went on, it was it was interesting because sometimes it meant that we signed up at a local private Catholic school, uh, private school to take classes. Um, it meant I, I, there would be times when my mother had to work and she would literally just drop me off with a friend of hers for like a week, a retired friend who'd be like, hey, this week we're going to like build a deck and we're going to, you know, do all these really fun things. And. So it was like it was it was me directed in terms of these were things I was interested in. I was like, yeah, I want to build a deck so I can learn how to build a treehouse. Like all these different all these different ways of learning um, how to do things. You know, I've never had a I've never had a formal class on like um, I guess it would be what geometry is like spatially like understanding mathematically how things go together. But I just you build a deck and you figure it out. Um, yeah. And so yeah. uh, so I it was it was really fun like being able to. Um, to be educated in that way. And and I think that so many parents can do things like that. And that was the thing. My mother was, my parents got divorced. My mother was working. My pa- my father was working. I had two older brothers. I was, it was a community. I mean, when, when people say, you know, it takes a village, I really hate when it implies that that's, that that is, uh, government and that is your city or whatever but but you should have a community of people that can all like help you with your kids and 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 I think it's great for kids to have lots of adults to learn from to have uh, peers of different ages to learn from I think one of the the most dangerous things that we've done not just okay cool we send our kids to public school and then we have to ask for permission to take them out to bring them you know on a vacation or anything else but I think one of the things I find really that really stunts our growth is when we put a bunch of kids that are all the same age in a space to like all learn the same thing they all have different learning levels and then on top of that they don't um like like they're all competing because there's this you know they're all the same age they're all trying to like distinguish themselves or not distinguish themselves 
Um, and there's all these social problems that occur because of that. Whereas if you have kids that are of different ages and it's kind of staggered, you have the, the older kids start to try to teach the younger kids, the younger kids look up to the older kids, it puts everyone on kind of a better, they, they all start to be the better version of themselves. Yeah. And I think that, um, I think that really, I'd like to see more non-traditional schooling options. I've got friends who are working on creating a program of private Montessori schools around the country. Um, and uh, and I think between unschooling, homeschooling, and and things like Montessori, which are teaching like non-traditional um, methods of educating people, I think there's just such a good way to teach people to think differently, and uh, and you know not put them in government schools. It's fascinating. This is one of those areas where you know one of my critiques of libertarians is we we always talk high theory, and we spend all of our time sort of raging against the machine, and you know government schools suck, and. And we don't tell this, the, that beautiful community-based story of yeah. like, you know, kids can learn if you actually let them. They yeah. don't have to, you don't have to lock them into a, a government cage and say you will comply with this. I think kids learn so well when when they're stim- like when they're stimulated or interested in a subject, they'll suddenly be like, let's go to the library and pick up every book on that topic. That's what I was like. I um, my mother's a college professor, so I spent a lot of time going through her textbooks because I just thought they were interesting. And so she was teaching a psychology course and I literally, like I, I pulled out her textbook and I started reading it. I was like, oh, this is interesting. And then mom, uh, I'd never taken like a formal test before. And mom was, it was back in the day, mom would like write her 50 question like midterm on the home computer and then she would print out a copy of it and then like it didn't collate properly so she had to print another copy so she took the like messed up copy with the spelling errors and she just handed it to me she's like you want to take this i was like yeah this sounds like fun cool like time me and like i sat down like like it was it was such a novel concept most kids hate sitting for a test but i was like cool this is awesome and i did it and you know mom graded it and she's like you got an 86 on a college psychology <laughs> exam, you know, and then and then I think when she gave that test to her her uh, her students, and uh, some of them got below me, it's just like my nine year old did fine, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we were in uh, we were in India a couple years ago. Terry and I speaking at was that an Atlas? Uh, it was an Atlas Network conference in Mumbai, and. Um, and what you're describing, this dynamic of, of parents and kids figuring stuff out despite government barriers on education, there's a movement in India, a very successful movement called uh, uh, budget private schools. Low-cost private schools. Low-cost. And it's not just in India. It's in Indonesia and a lot of the um, Asian countries. And, and they've discovered, uh, not surprisingly, that the government schools are failing completely there. So um, they started this movement, and it's very inexpensive. It's like a dollar a day so that you can send your child to um, private school. But what they are doing, which is even more fascinating, is that um, parents are sending their kids to both the failing public schools and the private schools. They send them to the public schools because they get um, free lunch and free things. They don't learn anything there. So they send these kids to school to get lunch, and then they send them to the private schools to actually learn how to read and write. Wow. <laughs> but there's also that movement, and the gentleman, I can't remember his name, the guy from Sugatra India. Sugatra Mitra. Yes, Sugatra Mitra, um, who is, the, the movie Slumdog Millionaire is actually yeah. based on him. But he started a school um, that he actually won the TED Prize for called uh, Classrooms in the, Classroom in the Cloud. And what he realized his is- His granny's in the cloud. Classrooms in the classrooms cloud. Classrooms in the cloud. All and right. then he uses grannies to help the kids. I You're messing my story up, man. 
<laughs> so what, what he realized is that you can put, you put eight or nine kids in a room with a couple computers and they will teach themselves. Yes. And he said it's amazing the things that they teach themselves and, and learn. And he said they don't need teachers to tell them what to do, but he realized that they need someone there to say, oh, Johnny, that was a really good idea. That was really great thinking. So he has now put together a um, coalition of grannies in the cloud awesome. that will Skype into the classrooms and the kids will present what they've done and they just get this positive reinforcement. And that made such a huge difference in, in the, um, what the kids learned. I've actually thought about that a bit. I had um, a couple years ago at uh, ISFLC, which is now LibertyCon in DC, I was having this great conversation with Anthony Davies about, um, uh, about different education models and the fact that, you know, we it is expensive to provide education theoretically. Um, and so, you know, how do we do that for, for large groups of people that, you know, they have to work, they have to send their kids somewhere, right? You know, what do we do about that? That's These are real problems that, you know, society isn't ready to have, you know, par like just parents being able to homeschool and, you know, pull off work and everything else. And one of the things that uh, I had mentioned was the idea of if we could use something like Khan Academy or something mm -hmm. like a, just a, a digital form in which, you know, kids can, you know, learn less, like log in and get a lesson on something and then and then be able to do a lot of their education on computers, but then have certain social kind of inter certain social experiments where people can like. You send your kids to that to, to a classroom for that, and then you have adults who don't have to teach them, but grannies. Actually, my, my thing was unemployed millennials, uh, but <laughs> but the idea is like is is uh, people that can be there to kind of guide them a little bit. It's not about teaching them; it's about saying like, hey, you know, how's your lesson going? You know, giving encouragement, giving help, a little bit of tutoring. You know, kind of like keeping an eye on the social dynamic in case you know some kids getting bullied things like that but the idea is like then they have they have adult supervision they have kind of a coaching atmosphere mentory atmosphere but uh, but then they're able to like learn on their own with the topics that they like based on what they you know select on the website and so no i think it's i think it's a really good system so this is kind of like liberty 2.0 because we're not we're not just talking theory anymore we're we're telling stories about actual things that work, and it's it's so frustrating when you when you criticize a government program on healthcare, for instance, um, you you get accused of not wanting people to have healthcare absurdly. Right. Um, but well, on if the government can't provide it, it, means you don't want it at all. Yeah. <laughs> but like teasing out those those specific stories about about the potential of liberty and community to to solve problems is is our challenge as we try to sort of reach this broader audience. Uh, you were talking about this uh, uh, yesterday, I guess, on, on the stage about, about storytelling. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it is really hard for a lot of libertarians in particular to sort of transcend that boundary of, of theory. Let's talk about what the ideal society would look like. And then how do we get there is an entirely different question. So I'm an anarchist. I believe that we don't actually need the government for anything. I think we could have private communities. I think we could, you know, figure all of that out. I cannot think of a single function that government provides that I don't think could be provided by individuals who are motivated uh, to have that for their community. Um, but then you get a lot of flack because as soon as you hear that, people are like, that would be a power vacuum immediately if Russia would invade America and all this. And so it's a completely different question to theorize about what's the ideal state of society and how do we get there? I think these things that you're talking about that's exactly how we get there. We start to prove that we don't need the government to do this. You know, back to what I was saying before, we're finally getting a proven model. Before, like in our minds, we've had government in 
inextricably linked to the creation of money. Yeah. Everyone's like, well, that's obviously a function of the government. You know, no one else could do that because you couldn't trust it. We've proven that that's just not correct at all. You know, we have private monies. We have lots of different competing private monies. Um, that's going to get more and more. You're going to get corporations issuing their own currencies. We're proving that that is a government function uh, that is unnecessary. We're spending a lot of money for, for and uh, and it's unnecessary. I mean, I was even chatting to the, um, the head of the former head of the US Mint yesterday, and he was one of the highest ranking uh, government officials to speak out in favor of cryptocurrency when it first came out. And even chatting with him, he's a brilliant guy. And he's like, I mean, he's a gold bug. He loves his stuff. He's a head of the US Mint. And even he, he was saying things like, well, you know, gold's great, but gold can be confiscated. Gold is not as easy to transport in the digital age. Cryptocurrency is superior there. So I think that we're seeing in action things that are making our lives more free. And we just need more of that. We need motivated people who actually want to change their lives, not just theorize about a far off future that we're probably never going to see in our lifetimes. But let's say, well, what steps can we take in the now to get there? and prove to people that you know motivated individuals can create a freer society themselves. I think one of the, the big things is I, I, when dealing with libertarians, there's a lot of theory and there's a lot like in less stories, but I found that um, approaching it from the entrepreneurial angle, because like libertarians, at least in theory, will be like, yeah, entrepreneurs are great. Um, and so I've, I've lately been kind of talking about the idea of utilizing entrepreneurship to solve those problems. And mm -hmm. Bitcoin's an excellent example of that. But even, Absolutely. Um, so I'm speaking at Anarcho Vegas on uh, t tomorrow. <laughs> and, um, and my talk is on... Uh, on private solutions to public problems and I'm basically going to say okay look like if you don't want to do this part of the movement you're not like you don't know about this touchy-feely story stuff let's talk about the fact that you could be an entrepreneur like we're you know we're risk tolerant individuals we we uh, you know what can we do and so here's a list of things every time someone says to you but what about the roads what about the money what about the what about the hospitals what about the poor people blah 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 every time you hear that that is an invitation for you to come up with a solution to that problem and then to be to, to use your entrepreneurial skills to to come up with you know and okay the taxi cab unions have, have, have uh, like have made it a mess to to and so expensive to get a taxi uber right like like hotels airbnb like we are seeing all these different things as costs drive up we can we can provide cheaper solutions to these problems and they're great stories but that's how you trick libertarians into being into stories. Well, I think it doesn't just trick libertarians. I think <laughs> it tricks everybody. people who are not libertarians yeah. because they use services like Uber mm -hmm. and they start to think differently about this. They use things like Bitcoin. They start to think differently about what money is. I know so many people who they'll watch my show and they've said to me, like, I did not agree with any of these ideas. I did not know what Austrian economics was before this. Like, I like Bitcoin because I wanted to get rich. You know, yeah. and uh, but now I'm an, I'm a convert. I see that you know there are all of these issues in in society, and I start to look more deeply. And so that's so gratifying when you start to see people take advantage of these things that entrepreneurs have created that have made our lives better and that starts to change their thinking yeah. they no longer just depend on government to provide all these things for them they start to think differently about the world and it's it's those individuals that create those companies or those products that are doing this they're actually you know taking that philosophy and putting it into action and they're changing people's minds better than any theory textbook could yes so i'm going to trigger my wife uh, um, oh this will be exciting I, typically on this show um there's actually a drinking game for people to watch this podcast um, every time I quote Hayek they have to chug but uh, but I'm going to quote Carl Menger and, and she's going to start yelling at me in a minute because because the, the point of all this stuff there was education before there was government education and money 
was a thing that people figured out as a means of exchange and a store of value long before governments came in and sort of hijacked the process. And, that, and that, that's Carl Menger's entire project. Um, do you agree, Terry? Do I agree that you shouldn't be quoting Carl Menger? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) All of these things that we're talking about, they all existed before government. I mean, people traded before government set rules and regulations. Um, They had seashells or salt or whatever. I mean, there were always means of exchange. And then, yes, at some point, government got involved. And and now technology is allowing us to get away from from government and, and coming up with new, really interesting things in, in the energy markets, in Bitcoin, in um, healthcare. You know, everyone talks about you have to have government-run healthcare, um, and that's just absurd. Um, what there about was, the roads? Oh, I know. Who about the roads? Or, the, the roads? or let's let's talk about sidewalks. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, and with, with healthcare, there was always the there was the line that said, "Well, healthcare is too important. You can't leave it up to businesses that want to make a profit." Well, that's actually absolutely who you want to leave it up to. And when you leave government out of healthcare and leave it up to the market, innovation happens, prices drop. Um, look at LASIK eye surgery, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I did that 15 years ago, and it was really expensive back then. Um, but because the government's not involved, uh, health insurance isn't involved, it's become you know so cost-effective and so cheap that pretty much anybody that wants to get LASIK eye surgery can do it because the government hasn't regulated it and it's not paid for by, by health insurance. But why can't I quote debt economists? This is my, I, I don't know why I can't. That's what Because I'm... you will appeal to maybe 1% of the universe when you quote debt economists. But if you tell stories, and not stories about debt economists, stories about real people, you might actually... We are actually mind. working on stories about dead economists, by the way. <laughs> I like the quotes by dead economists that are put next to famous actresses in online. Like that's one of my favorite memes. <laughs> like whenever it's like Salma Hayek, and it's like, and then it's a Hayek quote. Like, there, there are there, there are a lot of boys that Google Hayek, but but maybe for a totally different reason than I did. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I even find that like because there are, I mean, there's head economists that no one's ever heard of, and there there economists, there are people that people have heard of that they already have their ideas in their mind about. So, like, Ayn Rand is a great example of this. Is that my a lot of my friends on the left will be like, "Oh, I hate Ayn Rand," and then I'll make a post with a quote by Ayn Rand, but I won't actually mention that it's Ayn Rand. They'll be like, "Oh, that's a great quote! Wow, right. that's awesome!" And then I'll be like, "By the way, that was Ayn Rand." And so it is. I mean, you you find your entry points. We do that with cat memes, like. Cat, my, my cats have said very profound things on Instagram. Don't let your spark go out. <laughs> it also helps that our cats are named Rourke, Ragnar, and Reardon. Oh my God, my they're such good Ragnar. names. Yeah. They're Ragnar's such good names. Okay, you've opened this 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 you brought up can cats. of cats, but but let me let me bounce this theory off of you because I, I feel really passionate about this. Um, cats are libertarians. They're self sufficient. <laughs> They're confident in them themselves. They will come together in voluntary they association. They push things off tables. I've seen a lot of libertarians yeah. do, that do that as yeah. well. And whereas dogs, bless their hearts, are communists. They're always looking for a handout. They're, they're looking for, for your affirmation for their self-worth. Complete dependency. And, and when I say this on, on Twitter, people get angry. I don't understand. It just seems so obvious to me. I mean, it depends because you can be a libertarian and believe that, um, 
you know, other people have the right to behave however they want. You know, maybe that dog is like, listen, this is the good choice for me. And that choice is a good choice for you to behave with your owner. This is just an individual choice. I think we should respect the choices of dogs if they choose to be subservient. I think that's a totally legitimate lifestyle choice if you want to choose it. It's not for everyone. We're not going to force it on everyone. I don't see the dogs forcing that on every other dog, Matt. <laughs> so I'll just say you that know. dogs do kind of force themselves to be like, hi, 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 hello, hello, they just jump I just think they're entrepreneurs. They know how to do things. They perform tricks for people. They give cuddles. You know, they've learned what creates value in society. So they're, they're like politicians is what you're saying. They're not communists. <laughs> I, my dog has never lied to me. I don't have a dog. So that's a strange thing for me to say. But if I did, I'm sure it would never lie to me. <laughs> I'm but, a bird person, but in, 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 and maybe there's <laughs> maybe there's a societal solution here because in a perfect anarcho-capitalist society, there would be cats and dogs. Right. And they would cooperate. But the question, though, is where do birds lie on the libertarian socialist spectrum? That's a great question. I too. mean, well, they're food for cats. <laughs> you know that Ovens oh. has multiple I, birds. I'm, I'm aware. Sure. He, I'm barely saying he's aware. Well, just making aware. my constant, my constant boasting <laughs> about my birds. It's how I, it's how I lure other people into our movement. It's like, oh look, birdies. Um, bird memes. I, yeah, no, well, I mean, not just bird memes, but just I mean, I make so many random videos of my disabled bird with the no feet because he loves being cuddled. But um, I'd say birds, birds are. Uh, I would say birds are quite entrepreneurial in their own way, mm-hmm. like the tricks and the talking and the impressing people that way. But um, but you know, at the end of the day, like if you if you if you let the the cage if you leave the cage door open you leave the the door open your bird's gonna fly away and say fuck you like it's just like like i mean it's funny because i like well if, if it's a parrot it'll it'll yeah. say fuck you but, right. <laughs> yeah, I, you know it's funny there's actually um more than just parrots talk you really? learned something new today was but, that uh, a bird click you just did there <laughs> you, are, you are a bird not officially but I totally do that to my birds when I'm trying to settle them down like if my birds are squawking too loud it's a bunch of you make a bunch of little sounds for them to imitate so you go like like and, and they will imitate it and then they shut the hell up um, but uh, but no I mean I'd say birds are birds are tremendously independent creatures most people find that annoying about birds um, and in order to be, make a bird really friendly you have to start them really early with like cuddles and, and, and attention but like I mean, I have, my birds are completely self-sufficient without me, which is, like, I come home and they're really happy to see me, but right now Judd is watching them and he's like, they just don't care. Like, they're just, they're just eating, like, I just give them food and water and, like, they could have nothing to do with me. And is this like a metaphor for raising children? Like, that you've got to start them when they're young and they're probably pretty self-sufficient without you, if we're being honest. Yeah, like, is, they don't my, need the attention we think Honestly, I feel like my birds are a really good practice for my, for, for kids. So, so we did a show on cats, and there, there was somewhere beneath this joke is a serious. Also, the point. cats movie's coming out. Just saying, because Taylor Swift's in it. Sorry, continue. Okay. <laughs> I'm the only one in the world who's excited about that. Yeah. Sorry. Well, keep going. I'll, I'll pretend to be excited about it. Cool. Um, so, we, we did a show on cats and dogs, and and uh, I discovered that Ayn Rand actually wrote a letter, a very <gasps> serious that. letter to Cat Fancy magazine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, this is, I I am so excited to hear what And she sort of objectivist-splained to them the real purpose of a relationship with an animal like a cat. And it's it's hysterical, but but as as the economist geek, like I I think the fact that Americans in particular, but prosperous countries generally, we have cats and we have dogs and we have birds and they're members of our family and and my cats eat better than I do. And I, 
I, I don't say that with any amount of shame. I think it's a beautiful thing. But there is a, there's, there's something that we, that we made up sort of called the Pet Freedom Index. And countries with more animals and more, more fam- family members who are dogs or cats, um, it's an indication that we are successful enough and wealthy enough and free enough that, that we can afford these, these wild luxury goods. And, and you see that play out in Venezuela today, where Venezuela 10 years ago, even 10 years ago, was, was booming with, with families able to afford pets. And now, tragically, um, they, have they have to eat them. <laughs> they have to eat them. Oh, they have to eat them. And, I, and to me, like, that's, that's visceral. Like, if, if, you yeah. own, if you own a pet and, you know, you're sort of flirting with this idea of socialism and then you read these stories, like, you're, you're not going to buy into the supply and demand and the d- d- destruction of the money supply and confiscation of, of the land and all that. But if, if people are losing their pets because of the government, it, you, you might start thinking more deeply about the rest of it, which is a story yeah. and a metaphor. Um, as That's we do a the great same story to tell. Actually, yeah, I'd um, like to see someone do like make a, a fiction uh, dramatizing that journey. I mean, that's so it's so sad to think about. My God. Well, now we're all sad. Yeah. Thank you. Well, let's talk about beer instead, because <laughs> nobody gets sad when there's beer in the room. Only, only when it runs out. Did you? Yeah. yeah did you bring any for us? Um, now we're sad. There may be some beer in this room. It's possible. <laughs> but but we like we we've tried to find these these things that people care about. Nobody cares about Carl Menger, but everybody cares about their pet. Mm-hmm. Nobody cares about um, politicians, but they care about whether or not they can get a cold beer. Yeah. Isn't that right, Terry? That is right. You can't get a what. Was it in Mexico that they were trying to outlaw cold beer or Venezuela? Oh, it's in Mexico. Mexico. The the, the latest thing from the the Mexican government is they want to ban cold beer. Yeah, you can only get warm beer. Why? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to, like, sometimes when there are laws passed, I try to figure out what what the logic was even like I'll be like oh, this is stupid but I'll also go okay all right how did they how did they make this argument like what what like what conceivably does somebody yeah, think right. is good right like and are you drawing I, a blank I, with I'm this not, like I, just, I don't, this is I'm like I wear it's what? about uh um I'm gonna what's what's the guy's name that was on um Roberto Salinas Salinas yeah. Leon he said it was about control it was it was a it was a demonstration that he was in charge and that God. the government could do things like ban um, cold beer. So well, can we some blatantness, right? Yeah. yeah. Can we also just mention that the governments around the world have had a terrible track record with black banning anything in their <laughs> histories of existence? Right. Like, it, if anything, it's going to be a demonstration of how little control they have, which is probably going to make the government come down even harder because they're so angry that they don't have control. You know, like we see prohibition all throughout history; it's never worked with anything. Right. Government yeah. can write whatever they want on a piece of paper. It doesn't mean that they can stop these things. Like, they can't stop the indiv- like choices of individuals. Like, if individuals don't want to comply the the violent drug gangs are going to start running cold beer across the board <laughs> that's exactly what's going to happen and a lot of people oh, are going to die like in the process yeah. oh god you joke but i mean uh, history would say that that's what's going to happen but think about the ridiculous patchwork of, of regulations um in in the various states on alcohol i mean we grew up in pennsylvania uh-huh. and they sell beer only in beer distributors yeah and you can only buy beer by the case. You can't just buy a six pack. 
Because so that's going to, you know, help people not drink too much. I really just want to buy six, but oh, I have to buy 12. New Hampshire has state liquor stores. Yeah. And then Massachusetts doesn't allow you to buy alcohol on Sundays because they have the blue laws. Right. And so the New Hampshire state liquor stores are all on the border. And they literally just have giant signs saying, like, yeah. we are open on Sundays. And people from Massachusetts literally just drive up, get their beer. So you're saying that people will do whatever the yeah. hell they want to do, regardless of, of government restrictions to the contrary? Yeah. Does and that happen? I, but I hear, I hear that if you build a wall you're going to build a wall between Massachusetts and maybe and Massachusetts New people Hampshire. won't come up and like get their tax free shopping and their right. and their yeah, state yeah. liquor stores on Sundays well I'm, I'm going to take it back to crypto again because that's what I do <laughs> really just so you're talking about crypto individuals girl. doing what they want I thought it was blockchain girl I can't I I'm can't keep track both. yeah um like more and more of our lives exist on the internet more and more of our commerce exists on the internet how do you purchase things make your own choices if you're living a lot of your life in this very controlled environment where you have to go through your credit card in order to purchase these things you can't hand over cash if you're buying something from amazon and the distributor lives in china so that's why again crypto is so exciting for me because now people are starting to realize the value it has at at distance transactions these are transactions that cannot be censored that cannot be controlled it's just another vehicle where government is losing control and they're getting really worried because this is facilitating and enabling free choice on the internet finally we have a currency for the internet age and it's really exciting so we've talked about blockchain and bitcoin At length, and i've made sure of that You're and, <laughs> and we've talked about anarchy because um, these are things that you have to talk about on a and a girls libertarian redhead girls libertarian panel is that female issues right. um but we've only mentioned weed, so I feel like we need to go back there because that is the trifecta <laughs> of, of libertarian issues. Um, we, we've done a lot of work on this, and, and we're, we're trying in particular to, to, to talk to conservatives about, about cannabis and medical cannabis as a, as, a, as, a, as a choice that a doctor and a patient might make together. And, and I, I feel like we're making some traction. That we even convinced our friend Glenn Beck to, to legalize all the drugs. Right. Really? I'm going to get him in trouble yeah. by saying that. Yeah, it's oh, true. Wow. That's well, he said, that, he said that on our podcast. So right. I, yeah, I the guess, first I, podcast I that we did there. with him. So. Did he say legalize? But, but talk, about, talk, about, uh, talk about Joel or Christine. Or yeah, so um, we do a lot of videos, and we make them very personal. So one of the videos that we did early on that um, I'm actually very proud of because it was funded by a grant from the Aspen Institute. So as a libertarian organization, to get like our first grant from a liberal um, organization made me very proud. But we did a story about a woman named Christine Spanquist. Um, she's a mom from Utah, and she was diagnosed with brain tumors about 15 or 18 years ago, had surgery, died on the table, came back, but ever since has suffered horrible acute and chronic pain and took opioids and nothing helped. Um, and she started reading on the internet, because you can find out things there. Um, about cannabis and how it can help. I know it's dangerous. Um, and how it can help people with pain. And she started thinking that she might want to try this. And the interesting side note is that her father was a DEA agent in Miami back in the 80s. Wow. And like he was in the second largest cocaine bust in, in Miami. So um, she called him because she didn't want to do this without his blessing. And he said, yes, if you think it will help you, you should try it. And so she tried it and she, she got her life back. And what happened was she then started an, org an organization called Truce, and Truce and another of a, a lot of groups within the state of Utah have worked to get cannabis legalized now, at least um, for, for medicinal purposes. 
And we used her specifically because it was a family values story yeah. to sell cannabis. She talks about how she got her life back. She was able to be a mother to her children. Yeah. Um, so that was, a, it was amazing. And then we have a good friend of ours, Joel Davis, who has suffered horrible, um, if you look at an x-ray of Joel's back, it's like a, a figure oh S. It's, it's horrible. And he threw out his back and again started taking, um, he was taking 100 milligrams of opioids a day. Oh I don't know how you get out of bed if you're taking that much or how you can function. And he um, said enough is enough and weaned himself off of opioids um, by using medical cannabis. And he is so much better off now. He yeah. can, you know, his, his mind is sharper. He's working better. Um, there's just so many individual personal stories. And when you talk about people in a singular way, um, people can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. But the fact that even, even Utah right. um, and, and uh, legal cannabis, medical cannabis in Utah was, was huge majorities, Republicans and Democrats. Now, of course, the legislature has screwed it up quite a bit, but even Utah has legalized some form of medical cannabis and that that is that is a libertarian story, mm-hmm. but it's not it's not always about um, getting high. It's about about people making choices. Mm-hmm. But let's let's hear about Lit Club. How's how is the cannabis business? Lit Club is explain a explain what brand. it is. Explain <laughs> what it is. Uh, so Lit Club is a recreational brand, so we, we we don't touch the medical side of things at all. And partially that has to do with regulations. I mean, if you start making the the, the medical claims, there's there's other ways that that can be regulated in um, uh, in terms of the shops you're in, things like that. Um, but um, yeah, most people do make the, the medical claims about marijuana. For us, we, we just... Um, so Lit Club was founded by Judd Weiss, my partner. He's known for some photographs and some other things in this uh, in this movement. But, I think I've met this guy. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, you know, he's pretty cool. Um, but uh, so we, our focus is we are a flavor-focused cannabis brand. Um, a lot of the industry right now, there's one, because of the medical industry, because of the medicinal marijuana aspects, a lot of people do actually care about potency because they're looking for something high potent for, for whatever their medical issue is. But also, um, just like Prohibition and Moonshine, people just want the most, the, the, uh, the most potent uh, cannabis just to get themselves messed up. And so we, we really want to make it about enjoying cannabis, about it being... A, a, a new step in recreational enjoyment. Um, it's something that you can have at a party the way that you have a glass of wine or a cocktail or a beer. Um, and so uh, well, we as a company, our kind of ethos is about that kind of showing that, 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 that evolution of recreational enjoyment and, uh, and focusing on flavor and focusing on this experience rather than it just being, hey, like smoke this thing, get really, really high and be fucked up or or like or the the medical side of things for us it's like no we want you to just enjoy this experience yeah and that's what's what's cool about about the market is you're 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 getting that that granular on and on how to differentiate your product from everything else out there because i mean like there's been the medical world there's been the the stoner world and there's this emerging market of people who are like hey i'd like to try cannabis but um, you know, this one time my friend gave me this joint, I got really, really messed up and I don't want to do it anymore. And we're trying to show people that that doesn't have to happen. Um, and I, I just think that there's there's just such an opportunity there um, just for people to see 
what's better about like how this can be a better experience and and you don't have to take an edible that that you suddenly have this story about like tripping for 14 hours because you took too much of an edible um i i want people to enjoy themselves and and uh and it is there's there's such a an open place for that for people to just go oh wow like i can just try this and enjoy it and and yeah, so there is there is definitely there's a market for everyone, but that's ours. And I like to see that cultural perception is shifting as well because we normalized alcohol yeah. and it's totally fine and it's almost unheard of, you know, for people to be at a party and not have a drink in their hand because it's so normalized. And yet for so long marijuana or any other type of drug was a taboo you know topic and and you couldn't go near it it was somehow like oh it's much worse for you oh it's terrible and and it's amazing how propaganda can really instill that in us and and it can be perpetuated for so long I'm I'm really happy to see that perception starting to change like I hardly drink and I I don't smoke pot or whatever but I also don't recognize the difference between the two of them you know um a lot of people like as you say can get tremendous benefits from medical use of marijuana. And um, and I think that as a society, that the fact that we've shunned that for so long is just absolutely a tragedy for the people who've been suffering. So let's talk, uh, let, let's wrap this up with, um, we're going to solve all the world's problems in the next five to six minutes. Um, because I have this theory that, like I'm, watch, I'm watching the culture war. And by the way, this is happening within the Libertarian Party, which I think is kind of hysterical. But, <laughs> but the 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 the, the, the identitarian uh, left versus right, red versus blue, flyover states versus coastal elites, whatever whatever that thing is that that we're arguing about right now, it always struck me that that we libertarians had a perfect solution for all of this because. I don't really care how you live your life as long as you don't hurt me or take my stuff. And I don't care how you live your life. And I'm not going to judge, mostly not judge you. but Except when I get a dog uh, instead of a cat. Yeah. It's very judgmental. Wow. That's, there should be, there are some laws that should be passed. Um, but we're like, we're like the guys. And, and by the way, Mike Lee has made this argument, a very constitutionally conservative guy. He's his argument is sort of a federalist argument that the whole reason that we don't centralize things from the top down is that we Americans are very different. And, and we, the, the entire American experiment was one of tolerance and, and sort of uh, multicultural experimentation where everybody got to be who they wanted to be. And as these two tribes fight with each other and as they get smaller and smaller, I feel like there's an opportunity for some uh, I set of ideas or a party to come in in the middle and say, you know what? We could actually get along. Are you buying this? Anybody? <laughs> I, I mean, it seems optimistic. I, I have lost a lot of faith in the political process in general um, because I see, I mean, a lot of people use the word government as if it's this single entity. Government is made up of individuals who are all self-interested, have a lot of different complicating and sometimes um, like conflicting um, uh, influences like behind them, people who may like compromise their integrity. You know, it's just, I just don't trust the system as it stands right now. I think that I would trust the political system more if we saw it start to lose some of its power and some of that centralized power. I mean, I, I see it as a movement towards the, the federal government 
um, getting more power as we go along and the states losing some of their power. That's not a trajectory that I want to see continue. And I'm going to continue to lose faith in the political system as long as I see that. If we started to see a reversal in that, then I'd change my mind. Um, I know that like Maine, for example, they tried to get preferential voting uh, in place in the last election and they succeeded, but then that's been an ongoing battle to try. You know, if I started to see that this, a system like that started to change things, I'd be more optimistic. And um, and as we're wrapping up, I guess my last words will be about cryptocurrency. Yeah, uh, <laughs> really? I, mean, I did not see that coming. Yeah, I know. And I'm a very um, predictable person. Oh, left field. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> so I, wow, she knows something about that and she enjoys talking about it. Um, so back to the power that decentralized money can have, it all comes back to, um, to also taking back some of that control and giving it back to individuals. And I think that that's going to be really exciting. So what we're going to see and uh, the way that we're going to solve all the world's problems uh, is when individuals take back control of the money supply because that diminishes the government's ability to leverage huge amounts of money that they will use to pay for wars and for you know um, uh, making sure that drug prohibition is uh, is implemented and all of these things that we don't like um, then I think that once we see that power start to diminish diminish and they don't have the resources to pay for these programs and they they can't just you know spend a trillion dollars sending someone off to, to put bombs on another country we're going to start to see a shift that shift has already happened we're starting to see that power start to shift and um, the, the final thing I will say about why Bitcoin's going to win, because I think it is, you're gonna or quote, something... You're going to quote Carl Menger right now. I absolutely <laughs> am, because that is the best way to get a message out to, to someone. Um, no, I'm going to talk about the debasement of the US dollar. So Bitcoin can't be debased. It can't be debased. That's really exciting, because now we have competition in money, and it's competing against the US dollar that not only can be debased, but it exists in a perpetual institutionalized state of debasement. Once people realize they have a choice between these monies, we know where they're going to be going. And the next time there's a financial crisis, and we know that there's going to be another one, I know where a lot of people are going to be heading. So we're going to start to see the market uh, share shift there, and that's when we're going to start to see political power shift, and I'm excited about that. Terry, are so we on brand? Holy crap! Yeah. <laughs> so, so wait, 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 wait. Let me be a little more on brand for you. Yeah. Uh, oh, there you go. So, uh, I'm I'm not a one trick pony. There's not just like a one issue that I'm interested in. No, I think money's the most important though. Like, I'm so interested in getting rid of drug prohibition. Yeah. You know, I'm so interested in in looking at um, what we've got with people being thrown in jail, like changing that entire system. I mean, there are so many issues that I'm so passionate about, but I see money being an instrumental key way to be able to change all of those okay. so it's kind of i just, I just so you're like on are brand. you gonna are you moving to puerto rico soon <laughs> <laughs> maybe <laughs> so we have to split test this with our audience um, because we've we've used crypto girl and bitcoin girl and blockchain girl do you have a personal preference that you can try to skew the audience um oh that well i mean i'm getting older now so maybe we have to even change the girl part like F- f- lady. lady lady let's not go with female it just sounds really weird <laughs> I'm, I'm the i'm the crypto I'm the, female oh that's that's so not strange. right, right? No. So strange. That, that sounds like something a man came uh, up with <laughs> funny that <laughs> um you know what so her name is naomi brockwell as we're wrapping up so bitcoin girl came about because 
at the time, it was kind of like a fad. You know, you had libertarian girl, you had libertarian girl, you had objectivist, objectivist girl. girl, you had all these things. A Bitcoin girl wasn't taken. And I was like, <laughs> all right. You know, this was like 2013 when I first started making videos about this subject. So I was like, I'm going to do this thing. And it, it was, I don't know whether it's been a good thing or a bad thing, because then I put out a music video that was Bitcoin girl, um, you know, Bitcoin girl, whatever. Um, so it cemented that. And so yeah. now I'll go to conferences and they don't say like, oh, Naomi Brockwell, she is a former producer for cable news or current producer for Stossel or host of NBTV or CEO of Rainsworth Production. They're like, welcome, Bitcoin girl. And I'm like, listen, that, I'm glad that I have that. This isn't fun brand. anymore. Yeah. I, just, I can't shake it no matter how much I try. So I'm just going to embrace it. People can call me Bitcoin girl, crypto girl, blockchain girl, someone who's obsessed with this topic because clearly I am. And it's just, that is... It's fine. Or they can come up to you at Freedom Fest and go, are you often so Brian? Are you so Brian? <laughs> this, is happen- this happened, actually, it happened to me yesterday. It Someone came up to me and told me how together. great I was. And I was like, wait, wait well, that's awesome. You and then I went, and then they actually said, they were like, Naomi, you were awesome on stage earlier. You know what? Earlier. All red hats look alike? Is it, that what we're It happens so racist. Every Freedom so, Fest, like, we, yeah. I can understand that happening when, like, two years ago, I cut my hair into a bob. And so we were both redheads with bobs and fringes. And, yeah, and yeah. But, like, I... Yeah, yeah I, I don't see it. That's cool. The, the, the soft bigotry of follicle expectations. I know exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. I don't say. even know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody knows what that means. Um, and and uh, by the way, I'm going to let my wife get the last word okay. because because <laughs> that's how our marriage works. But, um, I do want to, we, we haven't really talked about the Libertarian Party and you've been a, a, a senior Libertarian Party poobah. And you've been I'm a party elder. You were you're probably you were probably literally born into the Libertarian Party. Mm-hmm. What is the state of the Libertarian Party today, and and when are we going to win some more freaking elections? Um, I mean, probably we'll win more elections when we focus on localized races. Um, that tends to be where we are actually capable of being successful. Um, I mean, I've been involved in the Libertarian Party. I was the vice chair of the Libertarian Party in New Hampshire from 2006 to 2008. My as I said, my parents co-founded. Um, my mother co-founded the LPNH, my father, Massachusetts. But um, the Libertarian Party, it's interesting because I like I have periods of time where I, I go, oh, God, the LP. But what's funny is I remember the LP in the 90s very well. And I'm, I'm encouraged by what it is now compared to then. Um, and... Uh, I mean, my parents will talk about the heydays of the, the 70s and when Robert Anton Wilson and Timothy Leary used to come to our conventions and how much cooler that was. So, you know, apparently we're just not doing it ju- justice anymore. But, um, but I mean, I think the Libertarian Party has a place in the movement. I think I, I don't have a lot of faith in the political system. And as a result, you know, the Libertarian Party functions as a partisan organization um, and it functions as a political organization and both of those things I think I think it's good to have you know like you might as well have like a dog in that fight you might as well have like that that avenue um, but I don't think that's really where we need to be putting our resources or our time generally um, uh, but I there are things I really appreciate about the LP I like the fact that um, as a party it tries to put forth a libertarian perspective on a ballot. When you've got, you know, a Democrat and a Republican, I want there to be more options for people. And I think that that, like the LP can function as that. And I think that that's a valuable service to just show people that there's another option. Um, And for people who are going to participate politically, 
I like I want there to be that. I want people to have more options. And so I um, I'm encouraged by some of the libertarian activists, the party activists are great. Um, you know, Nick Sarwar can be a controversial figure, but I'm I think he's one of the best chairs we've ever had. Um, and uh, and I like his snark. I sometimes think he fights with people he doesn't need to. Um, but I, I I really appreciate his occasional snarky responses on on cable news when he gets interviewed for things. We, we wouldn't really be libertarians if we didn't fight with each right, other. Right, and that's all the, the time. thing. I mean, the <laughs> infighting is going to happen. But I you know I I really I. It's weird because I have I've, I've spent plenty of time bitching about the LP, but then I like every time I go to an LP event, I I mean I just I hate them on the internet. Like I just hate everyone on the internet. But but like when I encounter libertarians in the wild in real life, uh, when we go to conventions, we love the hell out of each other, and we really it is a really good time to spend with people who have the same views about how not necessarily how you should go about things, but the ultimate like not having government do that, and it, it is really nice, and it is family, and and. I mean, every time I go to LP events, I find somebody who knew my parents or like or remembers me when I was a kid or something like that. So it's 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 kind of like a family reunion for me. So maybe I just have a nostalgic like tinge to it. But I I I think that um, the LP has a value, and it's not necessary. Like I I don't think that anyone should limit themselves to just one avenue for um, uh, for for fighting the system, unless it's Bitcoin and you're Naomi Brockwell. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, I applaud that, and I think more people need to be lobbying governments and you know making sure yeah. we have correct regulations in place. And I think yeah, you're spot on. Like go or you know hedge your bets, try everything because if we really want freedom, we have to go all out in as many directions as possible, and you know and make sure that we have people fighting. You know. Just, and, and focusing their individual in- interest, you will choose your niche. I've clearly chosen mine. Uh, and I'm so glad that people have chosen niches outside of mine so that I know that there are people who are fighting those battles too because I think it's so important. And that's the thing too is like is some people are good at talking the politics stuff. Some people want to lobby. Some people want to like – like we should let people do what they're best at, and the the idea like so many I found so many libertarians who ironically will tell people what they should be doing. You should be doing this. You should be <laughs> focusing all your time on this. You should be putting all your resources here, and it's like no, like it's like, very unlibertarian. It really by the way. is. It really is. But you know, I mean, and there's nothing wrong with telling people what what you think might be the best option. Like, I think it's great to let people know, hey, I think homeschooling is great. Like, that doesn't mean I'm saying, you need to homeschool your kids or you're a terrible parent. Like, no, I I just think that, um, I, I, I think that we spend a lot of time telling people, you should, this is the way to do things. It's like, no, just, just do what you do and show people a better way. And that's what we were trying to do with Lit Club, just to bring it all back to that, um, is like show people a better way, whatever that way is, whether it's like, this is how I'm gonna educate my children, this is how I'm going to run for office, this is how I'm going to petition the government or get a the ballot initiative done, or this is how I'm going to start a business or whatever, whatever it is, just show people a better way and hopefully they will they will get inspired by that and do their best. And that's something that actually Peter Thiel, I was watching a, a thing recently where he mentioned about that and back kind of looping us back around to entrepreneurs to close up the idea that, you know, those are the people, like he said, the entrepreneurs who succeed, they're the ones who just weren't talked out of their ideas because mm-hmm. we as a society are so used to just talking to someone and saying like, no, that's a terrible idea, don't do it. You know, there's so much um, uh, fear that drives us a lot of the time and it's the, the entrepreneurs that succeed are the ones that ignore the people who tried to talk them out and I think it's the same for activists or people who are successful in achieving some sort of change. They were just, you know, they haven't been talked out of it by the pessimists who are like, no, you'll never succeed in this. You know, just keep going and fight your fight if you believe in it. Terry, can you somehow bring some logic and order to this conversation? 
are we are we succeeding? What 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 are we supposed to do to take it to the next level? We have we have a political experiment. We have technology experiments. What should we be doing? Well, I'm not going to answer your question. I'm just going to um, say what's on my mind because I'm allowed to do that. That's the <laughs> first time you've ever done that. <laughs> well, I was sitting here listening to all of this and, and these closing remarks, and I was thinking about um, Pendulette's speech last night um, on the main stage here at Freedom Fest, and he was talking about the, the title of his talk, which was given to him, which is The Magic of Liberty. And he said that you know when he was given that title, he just thought it really sucked, and he didn't really want to use it, and he hates when there's magic in like titles because he just finds it to be really trite. But I was thinking about it, and um, there is a like there is magic in liberty, right? Nobody can say there's the magic of government, right? Um, and so I think that, that watch liber- this money disappear. It's <laughs> <laughs> just created out of thin air. Sorry. So maybe there is magic in government, but it's black magic. It's not like happy right. magic, right? And and I and I think that it's just that that I I am optimistic, and I mean yes, we are having setbacks, but I do think that um, people want to be free. They ultimately want that, and they and they recognize the the, the beauty of that. Um, and I think that we are moving towards towards a, a better place, and it's going to be magical. Okay, the last word, as promised. Thank you, guys. This was awesome, and I'm I'm mostly happy that I survived, and and, <laughs> and I will live to fight another day. Now we gotta dye your hair red. <laughs> yeah. What do you think, bright red beard? I think so. Let's do it. We have time before your next panel. Nice. <laughs> Thank you, guys, so much. Thanks so Thanks. much. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.